Tau Mai, Kitakanua Kōruai Kōtuku. Welcome to the land of a long white coat. Kia ora team, Josh here. Hope you're having heaps of fun on your attachments and you're learning lots of stuff. Before we start this week, I want to say thanks to Georgia Brownlee and Jake Aiken, some medical students from Otago, for their help with the te reo name for the podcast. That's Te Whenua Kōruai Kōtuku. Those of you listening from New Zealand will know that the English name for the podcast is kind of ironic since no one in New Zealand actually wears a white coat. But the te reo name is um, a bit more figurative. It recognises two things. Firstly, the special knowledge that doctors have, and that's represented by the kōruai, or cloak of knowledge, and also the prestige that's given to them by the public. That's represented by the kōtuku, or white egret. That's a bird in New Zealand that's considered to be rare and precious in Te Ao Māori. So thank you guys. Um, I definitely couldn't have come up with such an awesome name by myself. Okay, so what are we doing this week? This episode is called The Road Ahead. Last week we had a tour of those key hospital departments. Well, we were moving so fast we didn't have time to stop and think about the doctors in those departments. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. So let's start with a bit of an overview. Firstly, we'll do the training pathway from medical student to consultant. What are the hoops that you have to jump through to get to the top? Next, we'll cover what it's like to work as a doctor at each of the steps along the way and how those doctors at different levels come together to work as a medical team. Then we'll look at the structure of all the different medical specialties, all the different types of doctor you could become, and we'll explain the college system for specialty training. And we'll finish off with a comparison to how these things are done overseas, because it can be quite different. And then we'll wrap up with a summary. Let's kick off with the training pathway from medical student to consultant. How do you get from A to Z? Before we start, it's important to understand something about the way that medicine works. It's very hierarchical, and this is a historical thing. It is changing, but quite slowly. And as a result of this hierarchical system, there's a very linear progression of medical jobs that you have to go through as you climb through that hierarchy. So after you graduate and become a doctor, there are a series of jobs that you basically have to go through in order to get to the level of a consultant who is an expert in his or her field. And something else that's important to know is that, for better or for worse, you kind of have to keep moving. It's not very common in New Zealand, at least, to get to a certain level and then say, actually, I'm quite happy at this level, and then stay there for the rest of your career. You're sort of expected to continue moving through, just as the people below you are coming up, hoping to take your place, and the people above you are moving on, making space for you. So let's start off with the sequence of jobs that you have to go through. Maybe this is a bit oversimplified, but I think it helps. And then we'll talk through each one and what each job involves. So here we go. After your fifth year exams, you become a trainee intern. Then you're a house officer. Then you can be a senior house officer. Then a non-training registrar. Then a registrar. Then a fellow and finally a consultant. Now let's look at each job in a bit more detail. Something to bear in mind as we go through these, at each stage you've actually got two things going on. You've got your job and you've got your training, which I guess you could think of as preparing for your next job. At each of those stages, your job is with the district health board, the hospital that you're working at. 
whereas your training is going to be administered by some kind of external organization that's keeping an eye on you. Now, we'll talk about that more as we go through. Once you've done your fifth year exams, you're a trainee intern. Now, this is not a job, um, but I've included it here because I think it's important to understand its place in the pathway. A trainee intern is a final year medical student, and it's awesome because you've got no exams to worry about, and you basically get to play doctor for a whole year. So all of your time is spent on clinical attachments. You get to take on as much responsibility as you feel that you can. Um, but if at any point you're feeling out of your depth or you don't know what's going on, you just tag out, get someone who knows what they're doing, you learn from the experience, and you try it again the next day. Something important to know about the TI year is that it's your responsibility to ask for supervision when you need it, rather than being supervised by default. So you need to be careful not to get out of your depth too much, because you could actually cause some harm. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that you're getting lots of experience and not hiding in the corner, because then you'll learn nothing, and then you'll be a useless doctor when you do graduate. So the TI year is all about getting the right balance. So once you're done with the TI year, you apply for your first job with one of the 20 district health boards in New Zealand. And the job that you're applying for is a house officer, also known as house surgeon, or just PGY1, that's postgraduate year one. An old-fashioned name for the job is intern, but we don't really use that much in New Zealand anymore. Um, however, that is why a trainee intern is called a trainee intern, because they're training to be an intern, right? Think of a house officer as a doctor that's still undifferentiated, not committed to one particular specialty. As a house officer, you're going to do eight rotations in different departments over two years, PGY1 and PGY2, and each of those rotations is going to be three months long. Each DHB is going to have different runs available in different years, but usually the first year is going to be general stuff like general medicine, general surgery, maybe orthopedics, while the second year is going to be slightly more specialized stuff like pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology, and maybe emergency medicine. And the idea here is that you rotate through all the different departments and basically get to try each one out and see if it might be something you want to train in. So up until quite recently, all house officer rotations were hospital-based, but quite recently they've introduced something called a community-based attachment. And that's where you spend three months in general practice or some other kind of community-based attachment like community psychiatry, hospice, or sexual health, those kind of things. And the idea here is that by 2020, every house officer has got to do one of these runs either during the first or second year. So this is pretty great for house officers planning to become GPs, which is most house officers, um, because they get to try it out before they commit to the training program after PGY2. So what does the job of a house officer actually involve? I think of it as a mix of clinical and clerical. On the clinical side, you're going to be seeing patients doing an initial assessment, so that's your history and exam, gathering information, maybe providing a bit of initial management, but other than that, you're going to be passing all the information you've gathered uh, up the chain of command, if you like, to your registrar or your consultant. They're the ones going to be making the overall management decisions, and you're the one who's going to be carrying out those plans. Having said that, it's all quite different when you're on an evening or night shift as a house officer, because the consultants have gone home. And so this is when you get a lot more responsibility you're going to get called to see patients on the ward whose conditions changed and the nurses are concerned about them. You're going to be deciding whether new arrivals in the emergency department need to be admitted to your ward or can they be safely sent home. So there's actually quite a lot of responsibility there. Just a quick note on surgical runs. In smaller hospitals, house officers will be called on to assist the consultant or registrar in theatre. But in bigger hospitals, this happens less often and the house officer is usually more in the role of covering the ward 
while the consultant and the registry do the surgery. Overall, you're not expected to be an expert in anything, but you do need to be able to take a history, perform an exam for any sort of problem that you might see in a hospital. You need to be able to recognise sick patients that need urgent attention, and you need to be able to communicate with other hospital specialties in order to make that happen. On the clerical side of things, as a house officer, you're going to be ensuring that admission paperwork is complete for new patients. You're going to be making sure that routine medicines are prescribed in the patient's chart, um, ordering tests or imaging, often at the request of your consultant, and of course making sure that those results are followed up. And finally, one important job of the house officer is completing the discharge summary, which is a document that sums up everything that happened with the patient during the hospital stay. That gets sent to the patient to take home, and a copy also goes to the GP, and a copy also stays on the hospital system. A discharge summary is really useful if the patient ever returns to hospital, because then we can quickly look it up and see what happened last time. So as you can probably imagine, to be a good house officer, you've got to be a team player. You need to be a good communicator who's able to follow and give instructions. You need to have great time management skills, and you need to be able to juggle a lot of tasks at the same time. And finally, you need to be very adaptable because the situation is going to be changing all the time from day shifts to evenings to nights. And of course, you're going to be changing specialty every three months as well. So that's the job of a house officer. What about training? During PGY1 and PGY2, your education is pretty light since you're not actually training in anything in particular. Um, there'll usually be a weekly teaching session in the hospital. In terms of assessment, you don't have any exams. It's all on the job, if you like. The Medical Council will give you this massive online logbook called ePortfolio with about 360 skills that you need to tick off during those first two years. But other than that, you're going to meet up with a clinical supervisor regularly just to see how you're getting on and identify any concerns. So in terms of what the Medical Council wants you to learn as a house officer, the focus is on gaining general skills in triage, patient assessment, risk stratification and initial management, which includes some basic procedural skills like um, catheterization and lumbar puncture, that sort of stuff, um, as well as simply learning how a hospital works. And the culmination of all that training as a house officer is that the Medical Council will give you general unrestricted registration as a doctor that comes at the end of PGY2, as long as you haven't done anything stupid. Um, and getting that is the basic requirement to enter any specialty training program in New Zealand. And finally, and maybe most importantly, in each department that you go through as a house officer, you're actually trying to figure out if that's something that you might want to do for your career. So while your job is often clerical and many of your tasks are the same regardless of which department you're actually in at the time, you're going to be talking to the consultants, seeing how things work, and trying to imagine what it might be like to train in that specialty as a registrar and then a consultant. If you've finished with PGY2, but you're not quite ready to apply for a specialty training program yet, you've basically got two options. You can get a job as a senior house officer, or SHO, or you can get a job as a non-training registrar. Now, these are basically the same job, and SHO will have more clinical responsibility and freedom to make decisions than a house officer, and they'll be doing a little bit less of the clerical stuff. Usually an SHO job will be longer than the three months for a house officer, maybe six months or a year in the same department. A non-training registrar is someone who's employed by the DHB in the role of a registrar, but isn't actually progressing through the training program like a registrar otherwise would be. More on that soon. 
The job of a non-training reg is maybe slightly more open-ended than an SHO role. So you could maybe do it for a bit longer and you might get a bit more responsibility. But otherwise, they're pretty much the same. And the other thing to know about these jobs is that you can do as many of them as you like. Let's say you're interested in three different specialties, but not sure which one you want to pursue. So you could get an SHO or non-training reg job in each one in turn so that you can kind of try before you buy and then finally make a decision. Okay, let's talk about registrars. Once you've finished at least PGY2, maybe you've done some SHO or non-training reg work too, and decided that you want to train as a specialist, you need to get a job as a registrar in that specialty. You also need to apply to get on the training program for that specialty in order to start your long journey from first year registrar all the way up to consultant. We'll talk about the specialty training itself in much more detail later on, so for now let's just focus on the job of a registrar. Most obvious and important thing to know about registrars is that they no longer rotate through different departments, instead they just stay in one. And their goal is to become an expert in that specialty. Obviously this doesn't happen overnight though, so the actual role of a registrar day to day is going to change as you progress from junior, first year reg, to a senior reg who's maybe in their fourth year, fifth year, sixth year. A registrar bridges the gap between a house officer and a consultant. So the house officer can rely on the registrar as a source of knowledge and skills in that specialty, and a consultant can rely on the registrar to do most of the groundwork, but call the consultant whenever they need some help or don't quite know what to do. A junior reg is going to need lots of oversight by a consultant, whereas a senior reg might just need the occasional pointer, and they're going to gain more and more autonomy as they progress through. A registrar has more procedural skill than a house officer, so in a surgical specialty, they're definitely going to be doing surgery with a consultant, or maybe even leading the surgery. Just like a house officer, a reg does evening and night shifts after the consultants go home, and when they're doing this, they're going to be at the top of the ladder because there's no one above them. But of course, they can still call the consultant if they need to. And don't forget that during all of this, a registrar is going to be studying and sitting their specialty exams on the side. Those specialty exams are set by the professional college that oversees training in the specialty. More on that later. Once they complete this massive training journey, they become a fellow of the college, and they're then eligible for consultant jobs. Just a quick note, simply finishing exams and becoming a fellow doesn't automatically make you a consultant. A consultant is a job contract with the district health board. So before you can get a job as one, there's actually got to be a job opening. The DHB will only employ fellows of the relevant college as consultants. While they're waiting for a consultant job to open up though, some fellows can get stopgap jobs, basically continuing to act as a senior reg while they wait. Or a fellow might be gaining further experience in an area of subspecialty interest after their specialty exams are done. And finally, we come to the job of a consultant. A consultant is an expert in a particular specialty. They should have comprehensive knowledge of the specialty, and they're going to get that not just from studying for and setting specialty exams, but also from loads of experience in that specialty as a registrar. So as a result of all that experience, they're going to have seen things go well, and they're going to have seen things go not so well. So they're able to predict risk, identify warning signs, and take action before bad things happen, with maybe a little bit more foresight than a registrar. Consultants should have statistical knowledge of how effective various treatment options are and which ones are right for which patients. Their experience should also allow them to identify rare or atypical presentations. They should also have up-to-date knowledge of the latest literature in their specialty, and they'll often be actively involved in producing that research themselves. 
Most consultants no longer do evening or night shifts. Instead, they'll be on call a couple of times a week, available to help out the registrars and house officers in the hospital when absolutely necessary. Finally, a really important role of a consultant is to train registrars in the specialty, passing on the knowledge to the next generation. And let's not forget they also teach med students. So there we go, just some final points before we move on. You might also hear about an RMO, or Resident Medical Officer, and an SMO, which is a Senior Medical Officer. So this one's really easy, an SMO is a consultant, and an RMO is anything below, so a Registrar or a House Officer. Um, the name is kind of historical, and comes from a time when House Officers and Registrars actually lived at the hospital, so they were residents. Um, what else? A junior doctor? Well, this is an RMO, but it tends to refer more to house officers, so first and second year new doctors. One final point, which may or may not be of interest, um, I just wanted to briefly mention unions. So the Consultant Doctors Union is called the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists, or ASMs, um, and that involves each consultant having a contract negotiated directly with the District Health Board, whereas for RMOs, or junior doctors, whatever you want to call them, the union is the RDA, the Resident Doctors Association, and in that situation there is a group contract that's negotiated that all junior doctors sign collectively. So that's just relevant, I just wanted to mention that because as you guys probably know there's been a lot of stuff going on in the past year or so about safer hours for junior doctors and the RDA, the doctors union, has been doing a lot of that work. Now that we've talked about all the different kinds of doctor you're likely to encounter in the hospital, let's have a think about how they actually work together to get the job done for the patient. The key message here is that it's really unusual in a public hospital in New Zealand for a doctor to work alone. Instead, the functional unit, if you like, of hospital medicine is the medical team. And this is when doctors of different levels come together and all contribute to the care of the patient. The basic medical team consists of a house officer, a registrar, and a consultant. But you could have two or more of each of these, and increasingly nowadays, medical teams will include staff other than doctors, so people like nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, pharmacists, physiotherapy, or even occupational therapy. And I think this reflects a broader trend in medicine towards multidisciplinary care, rather than having a silo of this specialty and then another one and another one that don't really talk to each other. Each member of the team has a defined role and brings to the table their own unique skills, some of which we've just discussed in the previous section. But how exactly does a medical team function? To keep this simple, let's just stick with that basic team of a house officer, a reg, and a consultant. It's going to be a little bit different depending on which department we're talking about, but for now, let's just think about two typical inpatient wards, general medicine and general surgery. To make this really memorable, for each one, why don't we follow an example patient from the previous episode? Let's start with general medicine. Do you remember Mrs. Brown, the 84-year-old rest home resident? She came into ED by ambulance with three days of shortness of breath, productive cough, fever and increasing confusion. After being triaged and assessed by the ED doctors and receiving initial treatment of supplemental oxygen and IV fluids, she's deemed sick enough to need admission and since the problem is most likely medical, the ED registrar refers her to the medical team by paging the medical registrar on call. They speak on the phone and the med reg agrees to the referral. However, she's currently tied up with a patient on the ward, and so she asks her house officer to see Mrs. Brown as dead. The house officer goes down to the ED, reviews the blood tests and chest x-ray, which are highly suggestive of bacterial pneumonia, and then reassesses Mrs. Brown. 
He can't decide whether she's sick enough to need IV antibiotics, or whether oral will do. But he decides to play it safe and prescribes IV in the patient's chart, and arranges for her to go to the MAU where that can be started. The house officer goes over to the MAU, has a quick chat with the nurses about Mrs. Brown, and writes a note in her file describing his assessment and his plan, which includes, discuss with registrar. He calls the register up data, and then goes off to finish some discharge summaries that have been piling up over the last week or two. An hour later, the registrar goes down to the MAU and reviews the patient. She's a little bit concerned by the vital signs and level of confusion. She's a second year reg, and she does remember that while studying last night, she read that the likely causative organism in pneumonia changes depending on whether the patient's a rest home resident or living at home, and so Mrs. Brown might need broader spectrum antibiotics. She's not completely sure though, so she calls the consultant, who's doing office work this afternoon, just to check. The consultant thinks that she's right and recommends adding a second antibiotic. They decide that the patient should stay in the MAU until her heart rate comes down, and then she can go up to the medical ward and they'll see her on tomorrow morning's ward round. So, 8am the next morning, the ward round with the consultant, registrar and house officer. They all go in and see Mrs. Brown. She's doing pretty well, but the consultant notices that she's quite a small lady and decides to adjust the dose of her antibiotics, as she might be receiving too much. He says he can remember reading a study recently that showed a reduction in pneumonia mortality if doses were adjusted for weight. He also quizzes the house officer on the CURB 65 score for pneumonia severity, but the house officer can't remember, and fifth year seems a very long time ago. The registrar makes a mental note to read more journals in order to impress the consultant, while the house officer is just trying to balance the patient's folder in one arm and write in it while walking because the consultant has moved on to the patient in the next bed. Now let's do general surgery. Do you remember Miss Chen, the 25-year-old Chinese woman who was referred to ED by her GP? She came in with 24 hours of abdominal pain in the right lower quadrant, vomiting and anorexia. She was assessed by the ED SHO, who thought it was most likely appendicitis, prescribed IV antiemetics and pain relief, and made her nil by mouth in anticipation of surgery. The SHO, being a junior team member, was required to discuss all their cases with the consultant. And when they did that, the consultant agreed that it could be appendicitis, but they were a bit concerned that the pain was a very abrupt onset, and wondered whether this might be more likely ovarian torsion. The SHO hadn't thought of that, having not done an ONG run for a couple of years now. The consultant pages the ONG reg on call, who comes down and performs ultrasound in the ED. As it happens, the ultrasound is actually negative for ovarian torsion, and so the ONG registrar gives the general surgical registrar a call. They were flatmates in med school, and they still get on well. The surgical reg declines to review the patient in ED, instead asking for them to be sent directly to the SAU, since this is very likely appendicitis. They assess the patient on the SAU with a fourth-year medical student in tow, who is very pleased to be asked to write the reg's assessment and plan in the patient notes. They book the patient for surgery on the acute theatre list, and the reg pages the consultant on call to let them know that they'll be needed in theatre. However, it's now 5pm and the consultant was about to go home, and since the registrar is a senior and the patient's got no comorbidities, the consultant tells them to do the surgery themselves and just call them if they need them. The registrar pages the general surgical house officer, a PGY1, who's just finding their feet, to ask them to assist in theatre, but unfortunately the house officer has fallen asleep in the RMO room and doesn't answer the pager. So the medical student gets the call up. The reg and student perform the surgery without a hiccup. The student brags shamelessly about their experiences on Facebook and becomes famous among their peers. At 7.30 the next morning, the surgical ward round begins with the consultant, their registrar, and the surgical house officer, who reviewed the patient for approximately two and a half minutes 
ascertain that she has passed urine, wind, and that there's no sign of bleeding or wound infection, and promptly move on to the next patient. The house officer, having just come off a medical run where ward rounds took till mid-afternoon, is thankful for short surgical ward rounds, but curses the early starts. Hopefully these examples made some key concepts about the clinical roles of different doctors clear to you. Let's recap some of those. House officers perform initial assessments, make basic plans, and also perform a clerical role, but are called on to provide backup with more complex clinical tasks during evenings, nights, or when no one more senior is available. Registrars are starting to commit to their specialty of choice, also performing most initial assessments, but are able to bring more knowledge and skill to their management plans than a house officer could. They develop increasing autonomy as they progress through the years. Consultants bring expert knowledge to the table, leaving all the basic jobs to their junior staff and providing guidance whenever it's required. In addition, surgical consultants bring surgical expertise. However, they will expect senior registrars to perform uncomplicated routine surgeries at times without the assistance or supervision of the consultant. And let's also recap the training bodies that are associated with doctor jobs as you progress up the ladder. Trainee interns are medical students who report to the university while spending their days learning to be a house officer with hands-on practice under supervision. The progress of house officers is monitored by the Medical Council of New Zealand. They're required to gather a wide range of fundamental knowledge and skills during PGY1 and PGY2 before they can be awarded full, unrestricted registration to practice medicine in New Zealand. Registrars are assessed by the relevant professional college, while their day-to-day -day training consists of amassing clinical experience as well as apprentice-type knowledge transfer from consultants. This culminates in fellowship of the college, after which they're finally eligible for consultant jobs. I've decided to split this episode into two parts since it started getting a lot longer than I initially anticipated, and I want to make sure that people don't get bored. So in part two, we're going to look at the structure of all the different medical specialties, what kind of doctor could you become, as well as talking about some of the key professional colleges that provide vocational training for registrars in those specialties. And we'll also hear about how this all differs from how other countries train their doctors. Now I'm hoping to get part two out really soon, but if you've got any questions, feedback or stories to share before then, please don't hesitate to get in touch via Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Until then, I'm Kiziano.